Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. It's great to have you with us today. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm Carl Truman, uh, currently at Princeton University, but also pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. We're very privileged to have a special guest today. His name is Douglas Grutaus. He's the Professor of Philosophy at Denver Seminary in Denver, Colorado. But we haven't got Professor Grutaus on in order to talk to him specifically about his academic discipline. He's coming on the program to speak about a new book that he's written, Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament, which is a very, very personal reflection upon an illness that his wife has been experiencing now for some time and which has brought an element of deep sadness and some chaos into their lives. So it's great to have you with us, Professor Grutehouse. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Could you explain to our listeners your situation at the moment and what's going on in your life? Yes. My wife, Rebecca Merrill Grothuis, who is an author and editor, was diagnosed about four years ago with an uncommon and uncommonly cruel form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia, which begins with the loss of speech, the inability to find words, and then it moves from the frontal temporal lobes backward. So there is memory loss, the inability to accomplish simple tasks, and uh, many other debilities. Essentially, Becky's losing one faculty after another. And the prognosis with this is that those that suffer from it usually live five to 10 years after the diagnosis. Mm. So we've been wrestling with that, you might say, officially for four years when she got the diagnosis, but it's very likely that she had the disease two to three years before that. It just wasn't diagnosed properly. So this is a deeply agonizing situation to, to find yourself in. Why, why did you decide to write a book about it? I wrote an article in 2015 for Christianity Today about this, Mark Galley asked me if I would consider it. And at first I did not want to do it, but I very quickly wrote the article and received a tremendous response through emails, letters, phone calls. And I realized that I touched a nerve. There were many fellow sufferers out there who needed someone who would understand and maybe give some wisdom to this. So I got a contract with InterVarsity Press. They were very eager to publish it. And the book, uh, in a sense, wanted to be written. I didn't want to write it. I felt that I needed to write it to help people learn how to lament well, learn how to walk through some pretty terrible suffering uh, with a Christian perspective. But not taking away from the profound frustration and even agony of watching your once brilliant wife really lose her mind one piece at a time. You asked the question in the beginning of the book that 
really stuck out to me, and, and I wanted you to answer for us. And you say, does anger at God have a place in the Christian life? Mm-hmm. I think it does. Many of the Psalms express anger to God, even impatience with God. So those are Holy Writ and the Psalms of the prayer book of the church. That's part of what it means to lament biblically. You complain before the face of God and you express your full palette of emotions, but it is prayer. It's Godward. And I think it's better to be angry with God than to try to ignore God. Because you're interacting, you're... Or to pretend. Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of Christians struggle with. So I was really glad that you brought that up at the beginning of the book, but then throughout the book, you answer it not only in a theological way or a philosophical way, but in a very personal way that um, many who are suffering could identify with. I really appreciate that about the book. Dr. Grutheis, the book is profoundly sad in some ways, and I mean that actually in, in a way to commend the book, because I'm convinced that Christians, particularly contemporary American Christians, don't read enough uh, reflections on life and theological reflections that embrace uh, sadness and to help us lament. There's, there's too little of that. And so your book comes at a very helpful time for us. I, I wonder, how would you express the need for, the importance of lamenting well in the mm-hmm. life of the Christian? Well, all people this side of the fall lament in one way or the other. And it's really merciful of God to give us this category of lament to steward our suffering and to uh, learn the skill mm-hmm. of suffering skill that nobody wants to learn. But given the fall into sin and given our world of violence and disease and deep disappointment, we need to see the power of the cross in the midst of our worst suffering. So we can't pretend that it feels good when you get the diagnosis of primary progressive aphasia for your wife, and you can't pretend that it's cheery and rosy if you're looking at a terminal illness that you have. Now, this is not morbid. Mm-hmm. This is to voice all of your emotions and your concerns to God and to realize uh, that you're not alone. The worst suffering that ever occurred or could occur was redemptive. Yeah. That was Christ calling out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also said, it is finished. And three days later, he left the tomb empty, rose from the dead and showed himself to many, with many convincing proofs. But you can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. Mm. And that points, I think, without wanting to take the discussion in too philosophical a way, it points to a deeper understanding of beauty, I think, than we, we typically have. It strikes me that often the, the concept of beauty in, in our culture today is, to put it almost bluntly, a kind of sexualized kind of beauty. We, we see that as beautiful, which is outwardly physically attracted to us. And yet, if as Christians we take the cross seriously, I think that gives us a different, put it slightly pretentiously, I suppose, a different aesthetic foundation. There is surely something profoundly beautiful about a man caring Mm -hmm. for his wife long after she has ceased to be lovely in the worldly, crudely earthly sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think society doesn't really understand we don't think of that as beautiful. And yet, you know, think of the Hollywood red carpet. 
you know, all these beautiful people and how much human carnage is represented there, how many abortions, how many broken relationships, how much lack of love. Is there not something profoundly beautiful about a man loving his wife in a way analogous to Christ loving the church? Scripture does speak of the beauty of holiness. And we can sculpt meaning or smelt meaning out of the worst kind of suffering because suffering can be redemptive and because history is written by the divine author. So this fits in in some way, even if we don't know what it is. But what I come back to over and over again is love. Love God with all of your being. Love your neighbor as yourself and serve Christ as you serve the least of these, those that cannot care for themselves or don't have a voice. And it's something that no one would choose. And I can't enjoy it, but I can find meaning in it. And I can find some strength to go on through the power of the Spirit and the promise of the gospel. And I found that I've become more sensitive to other people's suffering. In fact, when I do these radio interviews, I think I've done 15 or 20 now about the book, often the host or someone who calls will say they have a friend or a relative who's suffering from dementia. And I try to express my my sympathy for that, and I will at least pray a few times for that person. So it has opened up the world of suffering to me such that I can extend some sympathy and probably even empathy in ways that I could not before, and I'm grateful to God for that. Dr. Gertheis, a few hours ago, the three of us on this side of the call were talking about the biblical doctrine of man, and we were talking about human dignity being inherent in man and woman because of, of the fact that we're created in the image of God. And I wonder, specifically, as you think about human dignity, would you say that the last several years has shed further light on that topic for you, either experientially and or theologically? I think it has, because if we think of a dignified person, we think of someone who has everything under control Mm -hmm. and can do what he or she wants to do. But dignity is intrinsic to being a human because we're made in the image and likeness of God, no matter what physical or mental state that we are in. So my wife, Rebecca, is just as much Rebecca as she ever has been by virtue of being made in God's image and being a daughter of God. Yes. However, when I'm caring for her, and we have a lot of other people helping, it's often like there's one mind and two bodies, Hmm. which is a very heavy load. Hmm. (laughs) Put on her pajamas, I'll have to say, okay, sit down, stand up, let's do this, time to go to bed. And I'm serving her, and I need to, but it's so deeply pitiful. Yeah. It reminds me of that terrible statement, I think, by Pat Robertson a few years ago, mm-hmm. who made the, uh, the statement that if you're married to somebody who has Alzheimer's, uh, you can divorce them because it's not the person that you married. And yet, self-evidently, if you have a biblical understanding of the image of God and you have a biblical understanding of personhood, that's not the case. So I, I very much appreciate how you, you express that. Mm-hmm contrasting what Carl was talking about earlier of the red carpet and that kind of beauty reminded me of something that you wrote in the book and you were quoting from Man's Search for Meaning, 
talking about Hitler's prison camps and men who walked through the huts comforting others and, and giving away their last piece of bread. And it says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And it's interesting contrast, because as I think about the Hollywood red carpet, all these models and actresses are flaunting choice, you know, mm-hmm. and, and freedom. And, and it's glorified onto themselves. But as it's described in your book as the last thing the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude and to choose to give your life to service. And it just also made me wonder how has that changed in your role as a husband? Right. How has your role as a husband changed as a caregiver as well? Right. Well, it's changed profoundly and I feel very alone because Mm -hmm. Becky uh, was my sense of reality on so many things. Uh, for example, I can sometimes be a bit of a hypochondriac, and Becky would always bring me back to reality. Mm. And she can do that now. Sounds like my marriage. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Pray, and she shows concern and affection, but she can barely speak at this point. Mm. Really, I'm in some ways more of a in a parental role. And what I did shortly after she was diagnosed is to get guardianship. Mm-hmm. So I make the final decisions about her care and all the rest of it. And it's not something that's really mutual if she cannot understand what the terms are. So it has changed, but we said the traditional vows. So I go back to those for richer, poor, and sickness and in health till death do we part. That's a covenant. That's a statement. And I'm far from uh, exemplary, but I learn as I go along. And when I sin, I go back to the cross and I go to the, try to go to the cross all the time. I need help. (laughs) I need courage and direction and stamina. Speaking of help, Professor Grutaus, what does the church need to know about these kind of things? I mean, I'm speaking here as a pastor and Todd here as a a pastor. I'm sitting thinking, gosh, if, if somebody from my church comes up to me on Sunday and says, I've just heard that my wife's got dementia or my husband's got dementia and and things are just going to get worse. As I sit here at this minute, it would be hard-pressed to know how to respond beyond the usual sort of bland pieties. What kind of concrete things should pastors be thinking about, should they say, should they do, in order to help individuals like yourself caught in these terribly difficult situations? I think some education about it is significant because you want to know what kind of a disorder it is. And then, of course, pastoral care. There are also some groups that are set up, like the Alzheimer's Association, which is not just Alzheimer's. It covers all kinds of mental problems. These groups have resources available in terms of care facilities, legal matters, support groups, and so on. But the best thing anyone can do is listen and try not to say anything stupid. Mm. I've got an appendix in the book called Lightening the Load. And people can be very well-meaning and say the most hurtful things. Try to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Best thing is to listen, commiserate, and then offer concrete help and 
this kind of a situation is extremely expensive. Outside caregiving is about $25 an hour, and the facilities are just outrageously expensive. So one thing people can do, I'm not trying to sound pathetic here, is help your friends and church members financially. When Becky was taken to the hospital, a good friend of mine, completely independent from me, set up a GoFundMe account, and many people helped us with her initial medical expenses. Mm. So I think of what Schaefer used to say, the uh, compassionate use of acquired wealth. I think we need to do that. And then also serving, coming to the house. We have someone coming to the house most weeks to serve Becky communion because she can't always make it to church. It's a very tangible, loving thing. And in fact, I talk about that in the book. Oh, that's powerful. And I think about Again, a conversation we were having a few hours ago about just the power of embodied nearness to one mm. another and how that does not cease to be important for someone who's suffering from dementia. Well, physical touch is very significant. And of course, we have to be discerning about that. Right. But uh, if you have two trusting people, a hug, holding hands, putting your hand on a shoulder, is very consoling, and you're not trying to fix a darn thing. Right. Unless we have a miracle, there's no fix. It's managing decline and simply showing solidarity and the fact that you're a brother or sister in Christ to this person. Or even if you aren't, you're a suffering human being. We're all part of this family of human suffering that we cannot finally escape until the world to come. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by, and, and again, touching on a couple of things that have already been raised in the conversation and what you spoke about as well, going back to marriage vows. I'm just struck by when I have a conversation like this, how unprepared oftentimes we are in a romantic age or a sexualized age, how unprepared we are to deal with this kind of level of loss. We live historically speaking in a very, very comfortable and healthy age. And so it's possible uh, to be a contemporary American and encounter very little suffering uh, mm-hmm. in these terms. And I think oftentimes people are entirely unprepared to make this sort of commitment to a spouse when they might have people advising them to walk away. Right. Yeah. I don't have any hard data on this, but... I've heard from several sources that when one spouse is chronically ill, or in some cases even fatally ill, that the other spouse will just say, well, it's a deal breaker. I didn't sign up for this. Well, if you did the traditional vows, you would have signed up. Right. Right. Yeah. If that's true, that's symptomatic of an age where happiness is conceived of in terms of personal satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Um, and not in terms of of service to others. And I think you're absolutely right, Todd, the issue of of death. I do a little test each year when I teach on the Reformation. I'll I'll ask the class, so how many of you have seen a dead body? Mm. And typically, if the person's under 40 and is not involved in the medical or the military professions, they won't have seen a dead body. And I think that makes a big difference. The first time you see a dead body, the power of human mortality is is overwhelming, and, and we've sheltered ourselves from that. I have a question for you. You mentioned in the book that, I think it was early when your wife was diagnosed, that people began talking to her differently. 
unintentionally, I take it, but in a condescending way, like raising the pitch of their voice. And I know my grandfather, he's in his 80s and he has dementia. And I noticed that in the nursing home. And I wonder, like, does that hurt his dignity? Mm. But then he also doesn't communicate as well. He doesn't have primary progressive aphasia by any means, and he can still talk, but he just can't carry on a conversation, really, like he used to be able to. And so I'm sensitive to that when I'm in there. Like, I'm his granddaughter. I don't want to talk condescendingly to my grandfather. Like, do you have any advice Mm. about that? Uh, Well, I'm sorry for that. That's a tough situation to be in. But you're discerning the same thing that I have because people that are losing their abilities are profoundly compromised with respect to everyday communication. Mm -hmm. I'd say they're more like children, although I don't want to view it that way. So Mm -hmm. how do you speak to children? Mm -hmm. Well, you by the language and you might call them things you wouldn't call an adult. But my philosophy of it is that you have an adult who is losing her abilities. She's not going to understand a lot of things, but you don't talk down to her Mm -hmm. the way you would speak to a child. You just try to get the point across. And in the book, I give the example of one of our deacons, Katie Gale, who often comes over to serve communion. And she never talks down to Becky. She talks with her and she administers the sacrament. And I think she's a terrific model. But I hear people say things like, um, well, you know, hon, move over and, you know, this will be okay or Miss Becky, and we live in Denver. This is not New Orleans. <laughs> we don't say Mr. Becky and Mr. Doug. <laughs> kind of like a diminutive reference that's a bit condescending. Yeah. I know people are trying to be kind and so on, but I don't think it's the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, our guest has been Dr. Douglas Grutai, so we could go on with this because it is such a compelling and important and moving subject. But we would commend Dr. Grutheis's work to you. He's a professor at Denver Seminary and has produced over the years a great volume of work in terms of Christian apologetics. He's known throughout the world as an important Christian apologist. But his latest work, as we mentioned, is a very personal theological reflection on a situation that he and his wife are walking through together. We commend this book to you, Walking Through Twilight, and we hope that you will, will get it and read it. It will be profitable for you, I promise. And if you'll visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, we will have several copies to give away that we would love to give to some of our listeners. And you'll be helped a great deal by this book. Dr. Grutheis, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us about this. Um, we know that that's probably not an easy thing, but we're grateful that, that you took time to spend with us. You're welcome. I appreciate being on the show. That was great. Yeah. And to our listeners, let me just say this. Douglas and and Rebecca Grutheis are brother and sister in Christ. So pray for them and pray for them as they walk through this. I think our program here gave at least a little bit of a sense of the ways that you could pray for them profitably. We look forward to being with you next time. Thank you for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on important topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time as Carl, Todd, and Amy discuss... We do not all agree on every single issue, but what they worked out was how to understand the difference between an issue in principle and an issue in preference. So what would you think about an advertisement that I saw a few years ago for a senior pulpit in a big church Mm -hmm. that said that the pastor reports to the session? What do you make of that phrase? Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, it's an abomination. It is. It's it's unbiblical. It's bad. Yeah, it's a secular model. That interview is next time. Join us then. 